Well, we uh, have started a study of the book of Genesis. And uh, we covered uh, chapter 2 last week. And we got into some of the apparent contradictions uh, that people claim they see in Genesis between Genesis 1 and 2. There's two uh, basically creation stories. And I failed to explain this. Um, Genesis chapter 1 is the big picture of the seven days of creation. Genesis chapter 2 is zooming in on day 6, and specifically the creation of the man and the woman. Now, last week, uh, we, we asked the question, was Adam really a historical figure, or is this story of the, the Garden of Eden just a myth? And um, we spent the whole time talking about the fact that the rest of the Bible takes the story of Adam and Eve literally. It's literal history, and if you've had questions about that or you missed that, uh, it's up on our website, and, and please listen to that. So that's uh, last week's uh, message. Now today what I want to do, um, we, we defended the historicity of Adam and Eve. Today I want to see what we can learn about the creation of Adam, and more specifically, Eve. And we're going to take a look at uh, Genesis 2, at least that section that talks about the creation of Eve. Um, it is not good that the man should be alone. By the way, this is a picture of a park that we go to uh, down in Florida. It's called Eden. So if, I think we found where the Garden of Eden is. It's in Florida. Okay. All right, Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said... It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed, remember, pluperfect? He already did this. He had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. All right, so he's looking for a helper suitable for the man. Here's a stork. Here's an ostrich. Here's a camel, and Adam's going, eh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs, one of his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Imagine that moment. Adam, here she is. In a wedding, I once said this. I said, and the man's first words were, boy, she sure beats a donkey. My wife said, I can't believe you said that at a wedding. Right? Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Man is ish and she is isha. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast 
to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And all that means is they were in total innocence. Uh, they were unashamed and un, not guilty before God and enjoying uh, the, the abundance of the Garden of Eden and the gifts that God had given them. All right? So this is pre-fall. This is perfection before sin has entered into the world. Okay? Now, do you remember the story of the emperor's new clothes? There were some hucksters who came into a kingdom and they convinced the king that they were tailors. And uh, they, they were uh, going to make him a new set of clothing. But they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know how to, how to sew. So they pretended to be making clothes. And then they went to the king and said, see these beautiful clothes. And they were, there was no clothes there. But the king didn't want to look stupid. So he put on the invisible clothes and he acted like, oh, these are wonderful. Now, the king's attendants didn't want to look stupid. So they said, oh, those are beautiful clothes. You should have a parade. And the king goes out, and all the people in the kingdom praise the king because they don't want to look stupid. And he goes through the street in his underwear. At least that's the PG version, right? And they all praise him for his beautiful clothes until one little boy goes, he's got no clothes. He's naked. And then everybody wakes up and realizes that they had been believing a lie, including the king. What's the moral of the story? Entire kingdoms can go along with a lie. Entire kingdoms can buy the lie. So somebody needs to speak up and tell the truth. Right? That's the moral of the story. God has given us this beautiful gift of marriage. It involves a male who is uniquely male, and a female who is uniquely female. And God brings these two similar but different creatures together for the first marriage. They are different, but they complement one another. And he marries them. By the way, uh, many commentators say that uh, he made... Uh, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This bringing of Eve to Adam is wedding language. In other places in Scripture, bringing the woman to the man by the father. This is the first wedding. So God creates a woman for the man. They're different. He marries them. And this is the prototype for marriage. Of course, Satan loves to twist God's beautiful gifts. And he's doing a pretty good job these days. You know, when we look at God's prototype here, it involves a male and a female. You know, we are on the verge of our Supreme Court right now, redefining marriage to include not just male and female, but males marrying males and females marrying females. God's beautiful gift ready to be destroyed and legal, right? If you point out that men and women 
are different. God created them differently with different roles, but they complement one another. You are looked at as a chauvinist. Satan has, has perpetuated that lie. If you point out role distinctions, something's wrong with you. And we see that he brings them together to complete one another. He takes uh, the, the, the rib and he makes a woman, but he brings them together. They complete one another. Um, the whole idea that men and women need one another in marriage. Do you know that 40% of all births in America are out of wedlock? In certain minority communities, 75% of the children born are born out of wedlock. So here's God's prototype. Our society has twisted it around and reversed it so it's the opposite. So, so I see my role this morning as the little boy to simply say, hey, the emperor's got no clothing. Somebody's got to speak the truth. Oh, by the way, um, today is Mother's Day. This is not a Mother's Day sermon, though. This is a, we're studying Genesis 2. Some churches, it's Easter, Christmas, and like the Bible says, Mother's Day. You've got to have a Mother's Day sermon, right? I, I don't think we need to have a Mother's Day sermon. We want to honor the mothers, but this is a study of Genesis chapter 2. Okay. Now, here's what I want to do. I want us to simply observe three words that describe the, wim- the woman here. She's a helper. She's called a helper. She is a woman, and she's one flesh. And we're going to talk about the idea that that's the idea of completion. She's a completer. All right? So she is a helper, a woman, and a completer. So let's talk about uh, helper. Now, um, this word is the center of a lot of controversy amongst different theologies. Um, There's two main ways that people look at gender in the theological world. There's, first of all, what you call the complementarian view. The complementarian view, and this is what I would be, uh, it says that men and women are created equal in value but distinct in roles. So God has created uh, men and women perfectly equal before God. But he has dis, uh, dis, uh, designed them and assigned to them distinct roles. Namely, the husband is to be the leader of the family and he is to lovingly lead. He is to be willing to die for his wife like Christ died for the church. And the woman, as Ephesians 5 says, is to lovingly support his leadership. Okay? That's a complementarian view, that God has created men and women equal, but he has assigned the husband to be the leader and the wife to be the follower in the marriage. Now, there's a second view called the egalitarian view. The egalitarian view says men and women are created equal in value and they're equal in roles, or you could say there is no role assignment. And they would look at Ephesians 5 very differently, and they would say, no, they're the, the husband, and while he's the head, head doesn't mean leader, and they would redefine it that way. Um, so these are the two competing views that are out there. Okay, Now, um, both sides have misused the word helper. Okay, Both sides have wrongly used this word 
to try to prove too much. Some on the complementarian side who say that men are to be the leaders, uh, here's what they would say. They would say, it says helper, she's to help, he's the leader, that's settled. Right? That's what the complementarian abuse of that word would be. The egalitarians come back and they say, well, that word helper, it's not only used of Eve, it's used of God himself. As Psalm 54, 4 says, behold, God is my helper. So if God's a helper and Eve's a helper, that, there's no role assignment going on there, right? Now, here's what I would say. The word helper itself doesn't determine the role of the one helping. The context and the whole of Scripture is what determines the roles of men and women, not the word helper in and of itself. You know, an employee can help their boss, and a boss can help an employee. The act of helping doesn't define the role. The person in the upper role can help the person in the lower role or the other way around. Peter can help Jesus or Jesus can help Peter. Right? So the word itself doesn't define roles, but I do believe that the context of Genesis 2 and the whole of Scripture does define the roles. Now, let me ask you a question. What are we to make of the fact that Adam was created first and then Eve was created second? Now, I would say, if you just read Genesis 2 on your own, you shouldn't come to any conclusion. You shouldn't draw any uh, role assumption just reading that by yourself. But what if the rest of Scripture has commentary on the fact that Adam was created first and then Eve was created. For example, here in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. So Paul is saying order is important here. The man was created first, then the woman was taken from him. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now you've got divine commentary on the order of creation. And what Paul is saying is the for here is not reciprocal. It's not reciprocal. Eve was created for Adam not the other way around. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean she's his slave and he gets to be Archie Bunker? No. They're both created in the image of God. But I do believe when you combine this commentary with the word helper in the context of God bringing all the animals before Adam, none of them as a helper, so he creates Eve as a helper. Combine that with this commentary, I think you have to conclude that now we're moving into the area of roles. Not just function, not just helping 
Adam can help Eve and Eve can help Adam, but now we're defining purpose or role. Paul, Paul comments on the order of creation in a second scripture in 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 13. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, I believe this is referring to a very specific situation. In the local church, the authoritative, regular teachers, in other words, the elders, are to be qualified men. Not just any men, but qualified men. Why, Paul? Is it because women are dumber than men? Men have more value than women? What, why, Paul? What is your reasoning? For, because Adam was formed first, then Eve. The divine commentary on the order of creation is that God did it a certain way. The man first, then the woman, not the other way around. He was, he was making a point, right? That the man is to be the leader, okay? Now, um, so, conclusion, the word helper itself doesn't prove that there are roles. But the word helper combined with the rest of Scripture in the context of Genesis chapter 2, I think does say that there are defined roles between husband and wife. Now, let me be quick to say, please, let's not overdo this. See, sometimes Christians grab onto a, a concept, a true concept, and they get overly legal about it. And they want to say, well, if this is true, then the following must be true. Okay? Um, be careful that you don't get too legal about this. You know, um, I remember an uh, extended family member, we were talking about this, and they said, Oh, so you would never vote for a woman because you hold to this. I said, no, I, I have no problem voting for a woman. Now, there may be certain women I wouldn't vote for. <laughs> it has more to do with what they stand for than their gender. Okay. Um, Scripture is very specific. The man is to lead in the family and in the church. It doesn't say that in society women can't be leaders. Think of how crazy that would be. That would mean, ladies, if you go apply for a job, you have to apply for the lowest level everywhere. You can't have anybody under you. Okay? Let's be careful that we don't take what Scripture teaches and overapply it. I think Margaret Thatcher was great. Golda Meir, Queen Elizabeth, the one in England and in my house, right? Okay. <laughs> there are others uh, who say, oh, women. You're never to leave the home barefoot and pregnant. Right? And I would say, what are you going to do with Proverbs 31? 
She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She's into real estate. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night, so she's got a little factory in her house. Sells it on eBay, right? She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. She's like the ship's of the merchant, she brings her food from afar. Here's an industrious, hard-working woman. So all that to say, let's be careful that we don't get overly legal with these principles. Let's read what they say uh, about roles and how Scripture applies those roles. Okay? Now, you say, well, this is all interesting, Pastor. Help me out here. Let's get practical. Okay, here's... Here's the way to live this out. Rather than coming up with a list of here's what you can do and here's what you can't do, which is where it seems to go these days, can we focus on attitude? Let me make four observations about attitude. Uh, Number one, can we just for a moment appreciate the beauty of God's order? You know, every team needs a leader whether it's a sports team, a business, there's got to be a boss, government, church, there's got to be a leader. Do you think God would be so careless as to institute the family but no leader? God has thought it through enough to appoint the leader. So let's just appreciate God's beauty in order. Number two, Right. Let's appreciate for a second the downside of the other side. All right, the downside of of being the woman in a marriage is, yep, she's told to submit to his leadership. The downside of the husband is he's got to be the leader. All right? Well, why is that a downside? Accountability. We're the ones who must give an account for how we led our families. You know, um, who was the first one on the planet who sinned? No, it wasn't Adam. It was Eve. Who did God call into account? That's not fair. Or is it? In fact, in Romans 5... Who gets blamed for the entire humanity falling into sin and death? Adam. Why? Because God gets to choose the leaders. I mean, that's the the nail in the coffin that seals the argument. God, Eve sinned first, but Adam is the one accountable. Um, There is an accountability factor that the leader has to assume. Here, in addressing the church, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. As a pastor, that's terrifying. As elders, that's terrifying, right? We have to give an account for your souls. And men, we need to give an account before God for our families. So sometimes it's real easy to, to criticize the leadership. You know, uh, imagine the guy sitting in the, or ladies, okay, let's say you're sitting in the, in the armchair watching a sports event, the Bears, right? 
And you go, I cannot believe what a stupid call that was. I could coach this team better than so-and-so. And then all of a sudden, a limo pulls up to your house. They pull you out of your lazy chair. They drive you down to Soldier's Field, give you the whistle. Now you have to run the team and give the press conference after every game. How's that? Ooh, I think I might have spoken too quickly. So let's just appreciate the upside and the downside of the different sides. Okay? Now, here's where it gets really practical for the ladies. You go, I, I, I agree with you, Pastor. Help me out. How do I do this? Here it is. Let me ask you a question. Is it your desire to help your husband succeed as a husband, as a father, and as a Christian? Is it your heart's desire to help him succeed as the leader. And, here's the killer, does he feel it? Does he feel your support? Now, you know my wife, very busy, very competent woman, teaches at Moody. Never once, though, have I felt like she uh, doesn't support me and want, ever since we've been even dating, her goal has always been for me to succeed as a godly man. I can say that is absolutely true. Ladies, is that your desire for your man? Now, fourth thing, men, have you stepped up to the plate and embraced your responsibility to lead? You'll give me some, give me some, uh, some pointers. Let me give you five quick things here. This is a three-point sermon. This is four points under point one and under the fourth point of the first point. Here are five things, okay? First of all, have you, do you, have you believed in Jesus? Have you placed your faith in Christ? You say, well, I believe in that whole Calvinism thing where God has to zap me. Repent and believe. You're commanded to repent and believe. You you don't get to blame the sovereignty of God on your sin of unbelief. Believe in Jesus. And then you know what you do? You get baptized. You lead your family by taking a public stand and getting in the tank. Does it save you? No. But it shows your kids and your wife and the world that you're unashamed to be called a Christian. Then, you read your Bible. Amazing, how many men have excuses? Well, I'm not a good reader. I go to Bible study. They, a lot of men go to Bible study, but they, they, they haven't mastered it themselves. You're never going to lead until you turn off the TV and open that Bible and study it yourself, and your kids see you doing it, and your wife sees you doing it. And you don't just do it for show, you're actually learning, okay? Number four, be here. Be in church, okay? Now, I know there are, what was it, last week, everybody was gone. The four of us had a really nice small group, though, (laughs) but everybody was gone last week. I know, there's vacation, there's weddings, there's whatever, okay? But... Can you make this your family rule? When you're in town, you're in church. Okay. Now, what's the plus one? Son plus one. Heard a pastor say this. He encourages everybody to, to try to do this. Be in church on Sunday 
and then be involved in one other ministry of the church, whether it's a small group or something else. So it's not just attending church and then leaving, but you're becoming part of the family of God. Are you involved more than just Sunday? First of all, are you involved on Sunday? And two, are you involved more than Sunday? And then benefit others. I, I, would, I would say this is your spiritual gifts. Find out what your spiritual gifts are and use them. Serve in some way. If you just do this, you're, you're moving out of couch potato Christianity into leading your family. Okay. Now, let's, uh, let's move on to point two. Uh, point one, God created the woman Excuse me, I just went blank here. Oh, he created her as a helper. Number two, he created her, get this, as a woman. Okay? Now, as I said, our Supreme Court is on the verge of redefining marriage. The entire culture seems to have. I remember there's even a president who, before both elections, said he defined. Uh, uh, marriages between a man and a woman, and then he evolved into saying, no, it's, it could be women and women and men and men. And the whole culture, at least the media, seems to have evolved with him. And now you're homophobic if you believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, regardless of what the Supreme Court says... Hollywood says, politicians say, God gets to define marriage because he created the man and the woman. Now look at this. It says, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Two genders. Okay? Jesus was once asked a question about divorce. Is it okay for people to get divorced for any reason? And Jesus says, all right, let me take you back to the blueprint. And where does he take us? In Matthew 19, he takes us back to Genesis 2. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Boom. Let's go over that again. From the beginning, he made them male and female. One man, one woman. One male, one female. Any questions? How hard is this? Now, if you believe in evolution, then the the sex has evolved, and who cares? Amoeba can rub against each other and do whatever they want, and that's all you are if you evolved. But if you were created by God, specifically male and female, then the only thing marriage is is one male and one female. He goes on to say, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So 
Jesus says marriage is monogamous, heterosexual, and for life. That's the prototype. Okay? You don't get to redefine it. Uh, I've never seen the show The Good Wife, but I guess it's a law show. And they uh, had a case where a baker refused to bake a cake for a homosexual couple's wedding. So the baker is put on the stand, and the, uh, the attorney says, well, let me, let me ask you a question. How many times does Jesus address homosexuality as a sin? The baker says, uh, none. Well, how many times does he address divorce? Oh, several times. Have you ever baked a cake for a divorced couple? Oh, yeah, plenty. Boom, you know, boom. Like that, like, like, and there's the climax of the show. That proves it. Wait a minute. I hope you're not duped by that kind of really lame logic. One, who ca- this is going to sound blasphemous. Who cares how many times Jesus uses the word homosexual? You know what? All scriptures God breathed. Whether it's in red and comes out of the mouth of Jesus or in black, if Paul says it, if Moses says it, all scriptures God breathed. So where do we get this hermeneutic that says only the red letters count? Please don't buy that. Number two... Jesus does address homosexuality. He may not name it by name. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Any deviation from that is a perversion. He does address homosexuality. Okay. Now, um, more and more even evangelical Christians seem to be buying into, hey, what, what does it matter? Just whatever, whatever you want to believe, live and let live. I, I don't care what you want to do in your bedroom is fine. Just If they want to make marriage between uh, a man and a man legal, who cares? Let me, um, let me give you some, some reasons why you need to be concerned about how the state defines marriage. By the way, there's different arguments. There's the argument from the children, what's best for the children, what, what's best for the culture, what's best uh, for the church. What, what happens when it becomes legal and the church says no? Will you visit me in prison? Okay. Um, so there's all those arguments. But I want to give you an argument from compassion, just from love. Okay. Five statements. All right. So we're on point two, five statements. Okay. Statement one, God is the designer of marriage, gets to be the definer of marriage. I don't care what the people in the black robes decide. You know, they could vote and say, the earth is flat. doesn't make the earth flat. Marriage is still defined by who? God. Okay. Number two, to reject God's design is rebellion against God. You can rebel against God on a national level. You can do it on a private level. But it's not just redefining, it's rebellion against the creator. Now, here's where we start to get into the compassion issue. 
Rebellion leads to damnation. Rebellion against God leads to damnation. So here we see the First Corinthians passage. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They will go to hell. The unrighteous will go to hell, is what that's saying. Right? Hey, it's Mother's Day. Let's see, we've talked about men and women's roles. We're talking about homosexuality, and we've got to get hell in there, right? Um, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He begins by saying you're going to hell, and he ends by saying you're going to hell. And Now, this is referring to a lifestyle. Those who say, I don't care what you say, God, this is how I'm going to live. Now, let me, let me spell this out. This is not saying... Refrain from these sins and you earn your way to heaven. Nobody deserves to go to heaven. We are all sinners. You are saved by trusting in Christ. You're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But if you trust in Christ, he will change your heart. He will forgive your sins and you will repent of your sin. Therefore, what this is saying is you don't earn your way to heaven by fighting against homosexual tendencies. It's saying if you're truly saved, you will resist those tendencies. You say, well, is it possible to resist? Yes. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, there are people who say you can never change. These people changed. Jesus changed them. So don't repeat the lie that you can't change or you're calling Scripture a liar. So all this to say that this lifestyle is rebellion against God and you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Now, point four. Here's where being concerned about the law matters. Law is given for three purposes, theologically speaking. First of all, okay, so this is point two. There's five points. This is point four, and there's three points under point four, okay? Law is given for three purposes. First of all, to save you. The law of God is given to convict you as a sinner to show you your need for a savior. That's one reason. Second reason is to sanctify you. Once you're saved, you look at God's law, not to be saved, but to show you how to live. But there's a third purpose for law, to order society. God has given law, not just for the church, but his moral law applies to society. Now, sometimes people just obey it purely for the avoidance of punishment. But aren't you glad that there's a law that says thou shall not murder? Thou shall not steal. Okay? And some, sometimes the only reason people don't do those things is they, the law says so. Now, if there's a law that says marriage is only between a man and a woman, that will prevent some people from engaging in that sin. Just like abortion. Make it legal, more are going to do it. Make it illegal, maybe the only reason they don't do it is because it's illegal, but they say it's illegal, it's immoral, I won't do it. Okay. 
And because salvation is all tied up in this thing, point five, true love cares enough to warn. True, enough, true love cares enough to speak up. You see, some people say, well, I love my family member who's a homosexual too much to, to say anything. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're going to let them go to hell without saying something? And the law of the land is one vehicle to lovingly warn people about the truth. Okay? Final thing. Eve is a completer. Okay? God creates Adam. He's alone. It's not good that the man should be alone. So God creates the woman, brings her to him. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay? Now, the idea here is he's alone. God takes the rib and creates a woman who's different than him, but part of him, and he brings her to him in marriage. And this lonely man now has a helper and a completer. Now, a word here. The, the single people amongst us, you look at this and you go, well, does that mean I'm incomplete? No. In the New Testament, Paul makes it clear that if you have the gift of singleness, and how do you know you have the gift of singleness? Well, you're single, okay? Um, but, but secondly... There isn't this aching need for a partner, okay? But in most cases, being alone is lonely. So God brings a partner to complete you. Remember that Jerry Maguire movie? I've never seen the whole thing, but I've seen, like, scenes Enough scenes that I've seen the movie 12 times, but I've never seen them all in one. But I guess Jerry Maguire and Renee, what's her name? Zellwinger, are married. And then they get divorced. And she's in this divorce recovery group with a bunch of women. And he comes bursting through the door. And he's babbling on, not making it. He says, hello. And then he's babbling on, and, and he's not making any sense. And he goes, you complete me. And she goes, shut up, shut up, you had me at hello, right? You complete me. Even Hollywood gets it, all right? Here's what Ray Ortland Jr. says about the term one flesh. While it includes sex, that's not all it's talking about. Here's what he says. It's the profound fusion of two lives into one, shared life together by the mutual consent and covenant of marriage. It's the complete and permanent giving over of oneself into a new circle of shared existence with one's partner. It's I was alone, but God created you for me, and you complete me. And you're my all in all now. Okay? Now, isn't it interesting that 
heart of the definition of marriage is, of all the things God could say on the second page of Scripture about marriage, he says, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his spouse. Why? He's making the point that, that as, as important as mom and dad are, she is now the new obsession. All right? So there needs to be leaving this unit and cleaving to this unit. And it's not only talking about location. A lot of times in the Jewish culture, the man would take he would propose to the bride. He would go home and build a room onto his parents' house. Then a year later, he would get married, and they would live under the same roof but in a different part of the house. So it's not primarily talking about physically leaving. It's talking about emotionally and spiritually leaving. Now, a lot of marriages fail because you can't cleave if you never leave. Okay? Now, I'm not talking about goodbye, mom and dad, never see you again. You're to honor your father and mother. So there's a continuing of loving mom and dad, but a giving over of your heart to this new person. And many times it's the wife who can't let go. Sometimes it's the man who's attached to the apron strings. Right? Parents, you got to let go, right? Sometimes marriages get destroyed by mom and dad meddling too much in the new life of the new couple. And this can be done in direct ways. It can be done in subtle ways. Well, of course you'll be coming to our house for Christmas, right? Of course you're going to do it the way we've always done it. And even in the mind of, of the new couple, you know, he's thinking, well, mom never did it that way. Part of the success of marriage is you got to leave and cleave with all your heart. Okay? Parents, please don't be offended when they do that. And children, you got to do that for the sake of your, uh, of your marriage. Okay? Now, that word cleave is an interesting word. It's the same word, the same Hebrew word that we we see of Ruth. It says, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. So here's Naomi, the mother-in-law, and Ruth and Orpha, not Oprah. um, they're, they're, They're walking with Naomi, and they've all lost their husbands, and Orpha kissed her mother in law, but Ruth clung to her. She's cleaving to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. There's the picture. I will cling to you. you I, I am pledging myself in a covenant to you and you're my all in all. I'm cutting ties with my past. Not that I won't write or email, okay? But my pledge is to this new unit. So, as we conclude here, husbands, you want to honor your wife today 
on Mother's Day. Fall back in love with her. Make her number one. You know, a lot of things get in the way. Work, even kids. Make her number one. Not just by here's some flowers and a card, but in your heart. Re, redoing that original commitment where you're my all in all. Um, my favorite verse in Ecclesiastes. You know, Solomon's struggling. What's life all about? I can't figure out God. Finally, he just says, I am going to um, rest in the sovereignty of God. I was pursuing happiness and all these other... I'm just going to find my happiness in God. And now the good gifts that he has given me, I can enjoy. So he says, go eat your bread with joy. All right, so go. Go, to, go out to brunch. Enjoy your brunch. And drink your wine with a merry heart. You can interpret that however you like. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. <laughs> that's, that's actually talking about putting on your cologne and your good duds. Right? There, are, there are days to celebrate. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion. And some translations say uh, she is your reward in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Life is hard. There's a lot of troubles. You've got to work hard. But sometimes you say stop. Putting on the white clothes, putting on the perfume, putting on the, the brute. Get a gallon of brute for five bucks. You know. We're going out to Panera. We're going to Sam's Club. Right? We're going to get us a hot dog combo with my wife, whom I love with all my heart. Fall in love with her again. All right, let's pray.